If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Moments like my daughter telling me a new joke mean a lot to me. But after being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC, which is breast cancer that is spread to other parts of the body, they mean even more. I take Ibrance, Palpocyclib. Ibrant's 125 milligram tablets with an aromatase inhibitor is for adults with HR positive HER2 negative NBC as the first hormonal based therapy. Ask your doctor about Ibrant's and visit Ibrant's.com. Ibrant's may cause low white blood cell counts that may lead to serious infections. Ibrant's may cause severe inflammation of the lungs. Both of these can lead to death. Tell your doctor right away if you have new or worsening symptoms, including trouble breathing, shortness of breath, cough, or chest pain. Before taking Ibrance, tell your doctor if you have fever, chills, or other signs of infection, liver or kidney problems, are or plan to become pregnant, or are breastfeeding. Common side effects include low red blood cell and low platelet counts, infections, tiredness, nausea, sore mouth, abnormalities in liver blood tests, diarrhea, hair thinning or loss, vomiting, rash, and loss of appetite. Welcome to Hello Somebody, a production of the Black Effect Network on iHeartRadio. Before we begin, I want to give a big thank you to my team, the team that makes this show happen every week. Thank you, Grace and Cole for graphics, Pepper Chambers, the hot one for writing, Angelo Greco and Anna Mesa for social media, Tiffany Hale for everything, Erica Eklund for Patreon support and production by the folks at Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media. In 1997, at the age of 13, Michael Lewis, also known as Little B, was convicted of a murder he and his defense team say he did not commit. Michael was sentenced to life in prison. At the time, he stood all of five feet tall and weighed less than 100 pounds. And despite those facts and his age, he was sent to adult prison. Today on the show, we have former Black Panther chairwoman Elaine Brown. Ms. Brown has devoted her life to Michael Lewis with the hopes of seeing the day he is free from prison. Woman Elaine Brown, and I call her that because she deserves that. Titles are good, purpose is better. She is not only a titled woman, but full of purpose. And so glad to be on this journey with you. Just honor and lift you up. I've admired you from afar for a very long time, and just the fact that you are on Hello Somebody podcast gives me chills. 
Oh my goodness. Yes, you you are. You're phenomenal. So the Black Panther Party, and you and I have had talks all along the way. You are just so feisty and tell it like it is. Woman. I mean, the true epitome of what black girl magic really is. That yeah. is you, Chairwoman Elaine Brown. We're pretty tough. We, we're pretty tough. Very tough. You, you, yeah. You've had some moments, some, some unscripted, I mean, not... When I say we, I'm not speaking of you, of me, I'm speaking of black women. No, I know. I, I'm, I'm tracking yeah. it. I'm feeling what yeah. you're saying. So, even not just your work within the Black Panther Party, but you are working on something pretty phenomenal right now. Not pretty phenomenal, it is phenomenal, and it is near and dear to your heart that a young man by the name of Michael Lewis was charged with, convicted, not just char- charged, convicted of, of murder at the age of 13 years old. And he is in prison. He's been there for quite some time. I think he's 32 now. 37. 37. 37 years old. And you have been on a crusade to free, <laughs> say so. yeah. free little B. Right. Yeah, t- tell tell us about about that, about him, about why him. Why did you take up this cause? Well, it you know it isn't it is about him and it isn't about him. As I quoting myself, and I really hate people who quote themselves, but um, quoting myself from the book I wrote about him um, called "The Condemnation of Little B." Um, if he were just a one one in a million, then you say, well, that was one of those unfortunate cases and we could talk about it from that sort of charitable perspective but he is one of millions in the sense that um he has been condemned almost from birth uh being born black and poor and male and especially in the era of crack cocaine uh in uh there was like absolutely no chance for him to be anywhere but in the grave or in prison uh, from the get-go, from from inception, because mom was crack addicted. So from inception, there was nothing much that you could imagine that could happen, realistically speaking, which is the shame of the whole thing. Uh, but in his particular case, I was living in Atlanta, and um, I'm only mentioning I was there because my daughter had gone to Spelman, and I had lived out of the country, and I came back to the U.S., and so I put a pin in a map, and so I went where my daughter was, which was in Atlanta. And within a matter of a year of my being there, not even, um, in 1997, right after the Olympics and right after the King holiday, um, there was this arrest of this boy. uh, And it was on the front page of the Atlanta General Constitution, the newspaper. And every day for the next month, there was a story in this big newspaper uh, castigating, demonizing this boy as a thug. a, uh, well, this word super predator wasn't used in the in the um, in the articles, but that word was floating around, popularized by Hillary Clinton, based on her husband's three strikes crime bill. These bad boys, these thugs, these hood rats who listen to gangster rap, wearing that grill, pants sagging. This is the problem in the black community. We got to get rid of them. So we do three strikes, and then we add in and we apply them those three strikes in that program and those mandatory, long mandatory sentences to children, meaning anyone under 18. In the state of Georgia, the limitation was at the age of 13, you could be deemed an adult as uh, for certain crimes, so-called crimes. So now, of course, we know that you can't drive a car at 13. Uh, you don't get to vote at 13. You can't 
buy liquor. I mean, there's a million things you can't do at 13. You can't live alone, at least if you already no, have no, some no. guardian, right? Yeah. But you can go to prison as a man. Uh, and as uh, to quote uh, uh, Pete Wilson, the then governor of California, who really loved this program, if you want to do big boy crime, you're going to do big boy time. They like stuff like that, you know, tough talk. Uh, so Michael was, you know, one of the first people charged because the previous district attorney had not exercised his uh, discretion to arbitrarily charge children and send them into the adult courts. You had to, under the laws of state of Georgia, the district attorney has absolute discretion to make a decision as to whether to send a case to the juvenile court or to send it to the adult court. But in that same year, we had the election of the first black district attorney of the state of Georgia named Paul Howard, who uh, in my state, as I would like to say it, who um, was gonna let Massa know that um, he would do for Massa what Massa wouldn't do for himself. I'm gonna make sure these little bad black boys go to prison forever. <clears throat> Pardon me, and his uh, sort of, uh, he made his bones on the case of Little B. That's what he was called. Michael Lewis was called Little B. So there was this thug, this black boy um, who was um, a street urchin. Um, <clears throat> there was nothing good about him. And he was roundly and soundly denounced by everybody in Atlanta, but most especially uh, the blacks in Atlanta, the blacks of some, with some imaginary power. Uh, what I call the Creole Mafia in Atlanta that runs Atlanta from the Maynard Jackson set the, the um, you know, all of those, uh, Bill Campbell then being the president, I mean, mayor, pardon me. And so um, Michael became sort of the poster child for everything that was wrong with the black community. It was absolutely shameful. So I was, I was weeping and looking at this boy being held up as like, what, what, how could this be? How could black people hate this boy? He hasn't been convicted of anything, you know? So I went to find out what was going on because I thought I have to do something about this. So I found his lawyers, you know, public defender, not quite as some other group, but it's like public defender. It's an arm of the public defender. And um, I just went to say, what can I do to help him? You sought, you sought, I mean, after hearing Michael's story. Not just seeing it in the newspaper. That's all I saw was he's being castigated, right? right. Castigated, reading about it. Something pierced your heart, your consciousness. and so yeah. Yeah. It kills me today um, to see how he was so isolated and um, demonized. How can you be 13 years old and everybody uh, calls you a demon? They don't know anything about you. And you're just standing there looking so incredible. And what really got me in terms of just emotion um, one of the photographs was in color, and it was him at a at a hearing, I guess. Well, he was in court. And uh, there was a woman uh, attorney who was the second chair, as they say. She had just really graduated from Emory and gotten her bar card. And it was a sister, and she had these, uh, these um, I'll cry if I think too hard about it. She had her these cascading, you know, uh, locks. Um, and she had her arm around him so sweetly. And so tenderly, and it was like, you know, something biblical. It was like this boy, and she was like the mother Mary, and he was Jesus. I had all these images of, of um, somebody come and see about this boy, you know. And um, so I did. And she and I formed our little ragtag army, 
of two because the other attorney was just horrible. Um, and we set on trying to find, you know, what was going on. So he was charged, and in the newspaper they cast it as it. This thug killed a good black father. And wait, there's another article. The, the wife that he was killed, that the man was killed in front of, and the two children. And he was killed in front of the two children. And the wife was pregnant, and she miscarried. And that's also attributable to this boy. So he's like the worst person you could imagine. He's killed this man in front of his children, and the wife has lost her baby being traumatized by this incident. He was supposed to have, the man and the woman were supposed to have gone to a convenience store in an area that's so rough that those of us who are black and who have lived in the hood, we say, no, nah, I think I'll pass on going to get a soda there. You know what I mean? <laughs> we all know. Everybody knew that was an area of town called the Bluff where you could buy every kind of drug in the world. You didn't have to know anything to know it. But if you had any kind of eyesight, you'd get it. So in theory, they went there to get a soda. She gets out of the car. Little B supposedly approaches the guy, tells him to cut his lights under some theory that um, they want to hide the drug dealing as if the police didn't know about the drug dealing. But And um, the guy was supposed to have said he wasn't cutting off the lights, and he was supposed to have said, where do you think you are? They gave him dialogue and everything. And then he was supposed to have gone around the corner, come back with a long rifle, and shot through the window three times and killed the husband. The children in the back, the mother is in the, uh, the pregnant mother is in the uh, store. So I'm like, what's wrong with this story? So I drove the blocks from where they said they came from to where they said they lived. And I passed at least 23 convenience stores, no matter what route I took. It would take almost be impossible to go into the interior of this neighborhood and find that convenience store. So already I'm questioning why you were at the store. And then as time went on, we talked about this and that. And, and, and I came to the conclusion, along with Patrice Fulcher, who was the, the little Madonna, the Madonna figure, this young, sweet, young sister, um, that he was innocent and that somebody else had done this, but they were pinning it on him. And that's exactly what it turned out to be. So as the case evolves, uh, so then they said, I said, what can we do? And they said, we need some good publicity. And so for some reason, I was able to get one of the editors at the Atlanta General Constitution to let me write an article. So I looked into his life. You're like, where did he grow up? Where is this? Where is his mother? Where is, where is anybody? And so as it turns out, he at 11 years old, he had been through a number of what they call deprivation hearings, meaning that um, there, the school or somebody had reported that he didn't seen to be cared for or something, and they had got gotten him into foster care. He ran away from one foster, and then he ran away from another one. So from 11 to 13, he lived on the street. So I went to the school, and I said, did you notice that he was absent for two years, you know? Did they notice that he was absent for three? Well, you know, Senator Turner, the school that he went to had a fire. So the records didn't transfer so for two years, did you mark him present? What did you do? Did you have his name? Uh, we just don't know. So he we was failed. Know. I mean, literally failed by the system. But we haven't how do you lose a child? Yeah, we, we haven't gotten anywhere. I went to social services. Remember, he's in foster care. Yeah. Do you have any record of having even looked for him? Because he wasn't in the foster home. Don't you kind of check up on this stuff? Right. Well, you know, he's... a. He's just a kid that fell through the safety net because you know how we have a safety net. And I went to the police 
the truancy officers. Didn't you ever see a kid out there selling drugs? He's really little. That's why they call him Little B. Didn't you say to yourself, I wonder why that kid's not in school? It's 11 o'clock in the morning. Right. Was he ever arrested for truancy? No. Was he ever arrested for slinging drugs, which he did do with his brother, older brother? No. Because all the police are in on that game. So I then went to a church nearby where he used to hang out. And the church didn't want to talk to me. Finally, I, I, I put on my, you know how we have our other voice. <laughs> I put on my professional white voice. Um, this is Elaine Brown. I'm writing an article for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm trying to reach Reverend Pastor Hoobie Boo Doctor, somebody, right? Self-ordained, probably. Um, did you notice this boy out there for two years? Finally, Pastor, somebody gets on the phone. We didn't know him. We didn't know him. I said, oh, sort of the way uh, Peter denied Jesus three times. You didn't know him. So I wrote an article about them, about how nobody knew him and that we did not care about him. We, the black community, it was a throwaway. all of this. And now the new black DA uh, who's going to prosecute this black boy. And I would give him the de I would go after the death penalty, said Paul Howard, if it were available. But he's too young. What is life in prison at the time? Mandatory 14 years. Paul Howard says, and I'm going to be at the parole board in 14 years and make sure he does 14 more. Everybody hated this kid. So he goes to court. He thinks everything's going to be all right because all his drug dealing friends, including his brother, half brother, are telling him, you know, his half-brother's like, don't worry, we got you. Because we, we know who killed him, but we think you're a kid. And just like all the times we've asked you to hold dope, nothing's going to happen. But now that we see something's going to happen, we're still not going to worry about it. So here comes the case. And you got a black woman prosecutor. And she is just uh, histrionically dramatic. I mean, she's just unbelievable. Susie Ockleberry. And she says, and she seats a jury, and the jury's got about seven blacks on it. And one of them is working for CNN. They don't bother. This story's been in the newspaper for like months, you know. So don't forget the bad publicity. And um, so they march out a guy named Big E. Now, Big E was one of the original people arrested for this, but they dropped the charges in exchange for his testimony. Of course, we didn't know about that part, but we. In July, that, that happened, the, the man was killed um, um, in uh, January, and then the trial was in November, and Michael had turned 14 by then. In any case, Big E gets up, and he says, I saw him take that gun, and I said, Lil' B, don't kill him. Oh, you mean you're the drug dealer that was just arrested for 151 hits of heroin for possession and sale facing life in federal prison? You said to Lil' B, don't kill him? Do you think anybody said, well, what do you do for a living, Big E? Uh, no. Then came the heroin dealer, Tom Tom. Well, I saw him with a gun. Then came the crack dealer, Chucky Boy. Well, I saw him. Then came the crackhead high on the stand, Bertha. And the other crackhead high on the stand, Linda Mae Mitchell. And they all testified, and they all got something. And they got money, and they got their cases dismissed. And all of them were heaped on this one boy. And he was sitting there in shock because he didn't get it. Right. I mean, his, his mental capacity, I mean, we know the science that says that is very clear about the mental capacity of children and at the age of 14 god only knows 
and, and, and not to genderize this, but I am. So since I said I'm not going to do it, I am going to do it. But we do know that women mature, girls mature mentally on average. But also, you've been out there in the street um, with these very people. This, this has been your family because you don't have a mother. Your mother's out there turning tricks for crack. And wait, and you met your father when you were arrested for this case. And he said, I think I'm your father when you were in jail. Now, let's put all those pieces together and figure out where was the chance for him. So by the time they finished, he was convicted. He went to the jury and in about three hours, he was convicted. There was nothing but nothing but the testimony of these all these crack dealers and well, I, did I mention Hootie? No. Hootie and Chucky Boy were the crack dealers. They had heroin dealers. You had, it was almost unbelievable. So no one came to his defense? No, not even his lawyers. Uh-huh. And um, so when he was convicted, I figured out how to go and visit him. Um, you know, I didn't get to be 77 uh, for nothing. I'm tricky. You know, when you get old, you got to be tricky. <laughs> I'm pretty tricky. So I became the investigator for the appeal. And, uh, and, and the, the young woman that was a lawyer, she'd write me a letter, so I'd go in and, you know, and so that's how I got to know him. And after a while, he kind of adopted me, he wrote me a letter and he said, dear mother, you know, the way people who are, um, don't have anyone can adopt you quickly, right? You're probably the only real mother figure that he's ever had. I, I would say I am, because at one point I said to him, well, Michael, um, you were homeless for two years. What did you do for, for you know, housing or anything? I was never homeless. I was never homeless. I always could find some place to stay, which included in an elevator in the uh, rapid train station, you know, uh, in the middle, like sleeping overnight and locking it in the middle of floors so nobody would bother you. Um, and one point I said to him, um, what did you do for dinner? And you know what he said? No. What no. do you mean? So the whole concept of dinner was not his middle opinion. class for him, right? <laughs> so I mean, this whole story just encapsulates not only a failure of a legal system, because I can't even in this case call it criminal justice, right? But a legal system that was designed to do just what it did to Michael Lewis. But even beyond that system, a society that allowed a little boy, not a young man, it would even be bad if it's a young man. I mean, for me, the mother in me, I don't think that your children, that children, it takes a long time. Just the, the pure notion of turning 18 does not make you grown in a sense that you're yeah. ready to navigate Anybody the world. had an 18 year old will tell you. You know that you're not grown necessarily 18. So I'm saying a legal definition of grownness doesn't necessarily make you prepared to navigate the world. So I want to park that there. But he wasn't even 18. This was a little boy. And it is very unfortunate to me, just immoral, but I will use the word unfortunate, that black children in particular, as we know, Madam Chair, they're seen as older than what they really are. So many studies out there show that people see black children as right. older than what they really right. are. When we look at not just the legal system, but we look at punishment even in schools, black boys are suspended outside the right. school for, at for higher rates. Eyeballing, right. things like that. Yeah, higher rates than their white male peers. So our children right. don't get mercy. They don't get yes. mercies in the school for little infraction, for just being kids. 
right. and they certainly don't get mercy in life beyond school. And that's something, I mean, to me, just hearing you tell this story, it, 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 it is a personification of the fact that the system is rotten. And it's not just the legal system. It is the American system that criminalizes, you know, there, there's something in, in a lyric from, from Ice Cube and, and he says, my skin is my sin. And I keep hearing yeah. that in my head as you're talking about Michael's right. story. And I, you know, if I may, there, there's something very specific about that too, but I want to talk about this question of criminalization of black males, especially. Yeah. But um, Michael was too dark. So let me just go there. I told you about the Creole mafia and I wasn't playing. It's like I asked people about Obama. Now, if Obama had looked like Clarence Thomas, would you really have been so enthusiastic about him? All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful VC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Michael was too dark, and I'm absolutely convinced that that was... Colorism. A part, a part of what happened to him and, and in life, in general, in life. Now, just to make a point of what you're talking about, my skin is my sin, the whole criminalization though, of black men and black women too, but black women less because that's another whole, con- we're, we're like more like whores and sapphires and crazy and all that other stuff. We have another, uh, you know, we're characterized in another way. Yeah. Yeah, but, but the criminalization we know that in 1865, before the 13th Amendment was even ratified, came the Black Codes, the uh, institution of Black Codes in the, in the so-called former, former so-called Confederate states. Now, our, we went from being a slave class to a criminal class. It was, it was a crime as a Black to not have a job. Now, how you could have a job when just yesterday I was working on Mr. Jones' plantation for free, And there are no jobs over there where the big, you know, all these rural areas. Um, And so if I don't have a job, it's a crime to be black and not have a job. So I'm now going to go on the chain gang to work for free again. You know, Douglas Blackman, a white man named Douglas Blackman, wrote a book called uh, The Re-Enslavement of Blacks from 1865 Forward. And it has fabulous statistics on the the uh, industries that we then built up also for free. 
such as the rail lines, such as uh, steel, coal mining, all of these we were sent in those early days to get this stuff started because we were now criminals just for being black. Now, for me, that's where we are today. As well. And I mean, the point is, we are mass incarcerated. Our people, the statistics are something like 35, 40%. I just say it's 50% and dare somebody to show me that it isn't 50%. Well, we are 13% of the population, we blacks, and we represent 50 some percent or close to it of the prison population. So I've asked black men who've been in prison, why do you think that's true? And they act like I've asked them to explain the Big Bang Theory. They don't even link up the fact that this is insane and that there's something wrong with this as opposed to something wrong with them because the neoliberal agenda has now said, we're not dealing with social problems. This is not a social problem. This is something wrong with you, black man. We have internalized that. We have. From birth, I mean. So my boy, that's right. So my boy is, I mean, we had a period of looking outward at social constructs uh, during, let's say, the Roosevelt era for about two minutes. You know, we had little social programs. They weren't that significant because racism was still, you know, big. But nevertheless, but we dropped all that social program because as Clinton said, and I like to quote this speech from 1993, only a year after, well, really the year of his election um, uh, that he took office, he asked the question, what would Martin say if he were alive today? And all these black people in the church <laughs> said, oh, what would he say, Master Clinton? And Clinton said, he'd say, I died for your freedom and look what you've done with it. And everybody black said, Lord, have mercy. Yeah, we done messed up freedom. And, uh, you know, we have to analyze things before we get excited by them. So what do you mean he died for our freedom? I thought I was... Martin Luther King said he was fighting for our freedom up until the day he died. So I didn't know we ever got free, you know, as a result. But anyway, and so then Clinton says, look at all this black on black crime. All these unwed mothers, these black mothers, it, Laquisha and them, you know, and the breakdown of black parents. This is the problem. It's not racism anymore. It's you. Let me help you by giving you the 1994 crime bill so you understand who your enemy really is. We're going to put these bad boys in prison. Right, and welfare reform. Which is shamefully criminalized for women. Yes. Using black girls as their example. We're not going to pay for her to lay up anymore with these having these babies out of wedlock. And I'm like trying to figure out the part about out of wedlock, but okay. Um... But the stereotype, and I mean, America has always had to have that other. And right. the black community, African-Americans have always been painted as the other. Oh. And even and when we are exceptional, right. it's still an otherness that permeates that right. exceptionalism. And we don't really internalize, not just we as black people, but as a nation, there must be some truth and reconciliation. There needs to be a day of reckoning in my mind about how we got to this moment. None of this stuff is new. It was all by design from the first ship. Well, it was by design because it was the justification, among other things, for all this free labor. 
these people aren't really people. Thomas Jefferson says in Notes on the State of Virginia, he said the differences between the black and the white are, are obvious. He said, you know, just their skin color, that immovable veil of black, it's not beautiful like the white admixture with white and red, and their hair is not long and flowing like ours, and they have a terrible odor, and they lust after their women. They don't know love, and they're lazy, Thomas Jefferson says on Notes of State of Virginia, and, and they're, um, they are, um, have no art or music or writing literature in them. And he says, and these are his words, and I like to quote this, and I advance it therefore that the black, and these are his word black, is inferior to the white in the endowments of both mind and body. Now and here is the third, pardon me? As, as he raped Sally Hemmings, you know. Yeah, right. and, uh, oh, yeah. daily rape. Right. You know. um, but he says, one pass of white blood shows an improvement. So she had enough white blood, I guess, for him to rape her because, and remembering that her, that his dead wife was her half sister. That's right. I mean, does that get any more? And I mean, that's what I'm saying. Well, so you've been on what I would describe as a crusade. <laughs> and it seems like you were called to come into Michael Lewis's life. You're out there, you're investigating. You're I'm not the investigator. I'm the chief investigator. The chief investigator. I mean, you really took this on as an assignment. And let me tell you why. Because once you give your word, Senator, you know this. At least I'm sure you know this. Your word is all you really have in the end of the day in terms of your interactions with people. And if people can't... So I told Michael, everyone has really betrayed you. And it's hard, it was very hard for him to realize the role that his mother played. Harder still for the role that his brother played. And everybody, and we know who killed this man now. We, we, we've known that for a while. Sure. But it certainly wasn't him. The gun, by the way, was he was four feet 11 and the gun was like three feet nine long. I mean, it was like almost impossible for his arms to have reached the. I mean, it goes on and on. So anyway, I begged people from the top down. I went to every elected official. I went to I went to elected people in the Congress, blacks I'm talking about. And um this was not a matter they wanted to be involved in. So I formed an organization called Mothers Advocating Juvenile Justice. And in Atlanta, we were together almost probably seven years. And at our height, we had like 300 mothers, all black women of black, of black boys. Isn't that something? Yeah. And then I formed another organization called the National Organization for a Radical Prison Reform. I formed mm -hmm. that with a brother who had just come out yeah. of the joint. So I kept trying to do different stuff politically, um, you know, running around to famous people. That's why I talked to you about uh, this podcast and why it's so important to even get this much out. I feel that I failed him because he's not out. And I thought I was, you know, I'm bad enough. I'm like, this ain't nothing. I, he's an innocent boy. I, I'm going to have him out in two years. <laughs> so, yeah, I've, I haven't necessarily been on a crusade. I've just been doing the same thing. But it's been a broad, it's been broader based than him. But he's my charge, so I'm not going to let him down. You know, um, it was real hard for him to deal with this parole decision. He went up before parole board in 2016. February of 2020 was the date, but there's no going before in the state of Georgia. Can you believe that? You don't get to talk to them. So in the state of Georgia, so talk, the the parole the, the parole board process in the state of Georgia. Right. 
one that you do not get a chance to physically go before. Oh, no, they don't care. You send in your, we, we send in, you know, like a binder of, of all the great things he'd done, of what, we, of what we had in terms of jobs, what we had in terms of housing, um, you know, the case. We can't argue the case. You can't, you can't say he's innocent. You can just well, say. You can just say, uh, basically, he's been rehabilitated. That's exactly what you say, yes. Let him out. You know, he, yeah. he he's, this is time and he's going to be a good citizen. Let let him free. All that. And we got letters and, you know, yeah. all of that. Um, and they just wrote a uh, denial. You haven't done enough time for the uh, nature of this crime. And they only write one. They wrote two sentences, two paragraphs, one sentence each. And you can you can revisit your you can come back for parole in 2022. But we're hoping to have other things. So there's other good news, actually. But in any case, I, I just want to say one thing about his incarceration over these years. He was immediately put into an adult prison and they had created a wing for children in this place called Alto because um, it was in Alto, Georgia. I've forgotten the real name of it. But anyway, and um, so all the boys that had been convicted in that general area were going to Alto. There were so many rapes and stabbings of these boys by these older prisoners. They finally, after about three or four years after Michael went there, he got out of there in three years. Um, they finally shut it down and don't have they made the whole thing into a women's prison. And so they don't have children in there anymore with men. Because you have a lot of boys who don't have, you know, a lot of family members. If you're in prison, you probably don't have a lot of people. People don't come and visit. You don't have any money. So you got these older guys, these predators. Well, a lot of times they put you far away when they sentence you. They don't even put you near, or not right. just sentence, but when they, when they ship you away. Right. Yeah, even they put you far away that. from your family structure. They don't care. They, they, whatever they put it. But in this place, it was the same place because that's where all the boys were coming there. <clears throat> and they're supposed to be separated by sight and sound, but they're not separated during the day. Yeah. Michael um, had a cellmate for the first month or two of his incarceration who uh, was uh, brutally raped while he was in the cell. That's what he saw at 14. Um, he told me, you know, it, it just goes on. And then, then there's stuff he doesn't tell me, obviously. Um, but because he lived on the street and he was so successful in living on the street in the sense of he survived who knows what, he was able to manipulate his way. He was tough. He's street tough. Sure. And I said, I told him, I said, look, you know, nobody's coming to get you. There ain't nowhere to run and hide. You don't have any friends, not prisoners, not guards. So you're going to have to survive. That's your only job is to stay alive. I told him that. And he'll tell you that today. He said, Ma, I stayed alive. I said, you sure did, brother. You stayed alive. So in those years, he's been to a number of prisons. He's been in a hole. In the beginning, he was in a hole all the time because he's a teenager, always in some kind of mess. Didn't want, you know, like the minute you roll your eyes at a guard, you go into the hole, you know, stuff like that. So he's been through an ordeal that I don't know what it is. I can't even imagine it. Um, But the worst one was about three years ago, he got out of being uh, in isolation for six years, uh, 24 hours down. Um, They're supposed to give you an hour out to like, you can go out just like in a cage. At least you'll see the sky, right? And you'll have actual air. They didn't even do that. We had to fight, 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 fight. He had no communication, no visits, no phone, no letters, no books, um, no papers. Uh, they gave him the Bible. I said, now you know what you're supposed to do now? You're supposed to read every God, excuse my language, you're supposed to read every word. 
And when you finish with that, ask for the Quran and read that and then go back. Because if you don't, you will go crazy. You've got to read everything in there and get involved in the stories and the history or whatever it is. You read it. He couldn't get anything. No phone calls, nothing. Can you imagine six years like that? No, I cannot. Just It's devastating. And we don't have a rehabilitation system in this country. It makes people worse. I mean, as a state senator, and I sat on the Judiciary Committee, and we, we were trying to do some criminal justice reform in, in the state of Ohio, we did have people to come testify before our committee. And I remember one man in particular who said, I didn't go in the same way I came out. Yeah, and uh, I came out more harsh than when right. I went in. Yeah. I, I basically have a PhD. I didn't have one when I went in, but I got a PhD in what he said, show enough criminology now, right. the real kind of criminology. Well, that boy was, told me that when he went in, like in the first month, he said, Mom, let me say, whenever he started calling me Mom, he said, it's more dope in here than it's out there in the bluff. Yeah, we, now, how does the dope get in there, do you think? You don't think the guards bring it in and sell it, do you? No, of course. No, not at all. No, we don't. And and phones are sold, and all this other stuff. And it's so. I mean, other. In other words, the violence and the barbarity and the close knit uh, part. It lends itself to every kind of horrible thing you can think of. What most people don't understand, Madam Chair. Except, I mean, little B is in a in a different kind of situation, but most people who are not there for those kinds of crimes that they've been convicted for, people are coming out. They're coming yeah. back. And when if this is how you treat people when they're in prison, and then you expect them to be able to come out and be able to try to be an asset to the community, when you made them worse by the conditions that you kept them in, That's you don't make us safer as a society. So it may make people have a short-term comfort. But if they right. understood that most of those people are coming back and they got to navigate the real world with us, it would behoove us as a country not to incarcerate the way that we do if we truly believe in rehabilitation and the fact that, you know, we say, once you paid your debt to society, it's over. No, it's not over because when I get out, I can't get a job. I can't find anywhere to live. No, you can't. And, and not only that, um, when you get out and you have no money and you don't have, because that's probably why you went to prison because you had no money. You stole something and robbed somebody. Um, and you come back, you, let's say you've done only 10 years, but you know, these mandatory sentences are very long now. So people are staying in prison much longer under that law than they were before that, uh, which is why the incarceration is because they're adding on to people who are going to be in there forever. Right now, uh, I mean, one of the co-founders of the organization I told you about, Mothers Advocating Juvenile Justice, well, the other co-founder with me, her son did uh, 10 years mandatory on an armed robbery with no gun, and he took $27 from a convenience store, did 10 years. Now, does that make sense for a 15-year-old boy to go into prison. Now, this is one of those things where, are you stupid? Did you actually go in that store and say you had a gun and stole some money? I mean, we could all correct that in about one minute. You Maybe I'll say, you got to go in there and clean the store for the next two months. That's you know, cool. something. We have a million thoughts that we could do with yeah. a boy doing that kind of. The mother was so disgusted, and that's how he ended up telling the police the truth, because she wanted him to tell the truth. By telling the truth, he had no defense. 
Right. He's now confessed. And they said it's armed robbery, even though he had no gun, because he intimidated the, um, you know, the cashier. And the cashier testified that she didn't, she knew him. She didn't feel anything about it. And, um, and that didn't, that didn't move them. No, but the jury found that he was guilty of what he, they said he did. But what they said he did included the concept of armed robbery. And the jury doesn't sentence because the sentence is mandatory. And there was a minimum of 10. Yeah. And he did 10 years on a, on a $27 robbery where Just, no one was hurt. Yeah, these mandatory minimums, what the 1994 crime bill did and continues to do. Um, well, you know, we fought to repeal that, and you know, we were down there in Atlanta. We were with Joe Lowry, all the old civil rights guys, you know, and uh, we had the new, and we had young people, a lot of mothers, young mothers, and we did everything to get that bill repealed. But you had black legislators who would be like, "These bad boys need to stay in prison forever." We're like, are you really serious about this? <laughs> we, we we have been programmed to feel that way, even about ourselves. We don't even meet out a type of mercy. To our yeah. own people. This is look. This child is like you, you know. Yeah. Or it could be your son, your daughter. It is you. So, Madam Chair, let me in our in our remaining minutes. I want to read your words to you. <laughs> we have to acknowledge that there are massive problems if we want to facilitate change. There has been no effort to change the design of this country. Yeah. So that part about acknowledgement of massive problems. If we want to facilitate change, there has been no effort to change the design of this country. You have been on the front lines your entire life as a activist activist. I mean, before it was cool and popular, before Twitter, before Instagram, before Facebook, you led the Black Panther Party. Yes, I did. <laughs> and you were in a movement that, to me, very much laid the foundation for over the course of years. Because to me, if we look back, I mean, from people like Marcus Garvey, you know, rise right. up, you beautiful black people. The Black Panther Party was very much in that spirit. People like you paved the way. You were in it. You weren't pretending you were in it, in the thick of it. What message would you give to activists in the 21st century about how to not just acknowledge the mass, they, they get it, but how to be part of facilitating the change that they're putting their bodies on the line for in the same way that you and your contemporaries did? Right. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then, trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. AT&T connects an ode to podcast. Connect the alarm, change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes 
everything AT&T. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I think the, the first thing is to really have a correct analysis of what is going on. In other words, the system that put us into Uh, slavery for 250 years is not one that we can continue to support. It's already in the design. So when you keep thinking that you're going to fix some little piece of this, uh, you're going to have, oh, no more chokehold. How many years are we going to spend on chokehold? Um, We've already done that, been there. Uh, This is not really uh, activism. I mean, we want to do these things. But what is your ultimate goal? So the Black Panther Party had an underlying ideology, and our ideology was essentially a Marxist. You know, somebody told Huey that uh, Huey Newton that uh, that uh, Karl Marx was a racist. He said he probably was, but he wasn't a Marxist. <laughs> so we are. And so the way we're going to deal with this is our analysis is this structure is structurally in is not going to ever allow for people to have the lives they want because it is requires exploitation of other human beings. That's why we have the the wealth gap and all these little words that we use today. There is a big gap. How do we as black people begin to not close the gap, but to turn over the situation so that the concept of not having food unless you have money, not having health care unless you have money, not having a place to live unless you have money, and then all that you've got to do to have money, um, when do we, how do we fix that? Now, there is no one answer, obviously, because if I had it, <laughs> but I do have a little organization I'm trying to put together uh, that sort of um, recalls the spirit of the Panther. Sure. And, um, um, and what people have to do is, as my friend Stokely Carmichael, who became Kwame Ture, said all the time, organize, organize, organize. If we are not organized, we will achieve nothing. You cannot have these loose nicks, helter-skelter, let everybody have the mic, let's not have an agenda, let's not have an ideology, but we're just going to go for whatever's before us for this particular moment. We've got to have a plan, an ideology, an agenda, and people willing to make some sacrifices. It's not enough to have walked in Ferguson. It's not enough to have thrown some rocks through a window. It's not. Because unless you'd want to know what, what is your plan on throwing those rocks... So you're, you're saying, oh, these are the bad protesters that broke the windows of Target. So then we, we got onto a whole conversation about nonviolent protests, peaceful protests, 
versus violent protests. And we and we and we actually begin to characterize how we are able to protest. In the Black Panther Party, we said we wanted an end to police brutality and murder of black people. And then the part of the second part of that demand was we believe we have the right to be armed and to defend ourselves. And we believe we should be able to form militias for the defense of our community. And we did that. Now, everybody gets scared. I'm using that one because everybody gets scared when they hear that. Oh, my God, are you serious? We don't want to have guns. Oh, you, you want to have George Floyd killed, but you want to march and hope that somewhere they'll march will result in no more George Floyds. Right, but you, so this is not, not a correct analysis because we had a lot of George Floyd, Floyds, right? So it's not a correct analysis. And what we've seen, like Oakland PD, where I am, the Oakland City Council, the progressive Oakland City Council, with four blacks on it, voted to reduce the Oakland PD budget by, here comes the drum roll, 1%. And nobody has said anything since then, because it's hard to sustain a rally all day, every day. You've got to get involved in that hard, day-to-day, long, boring work. We formed, we said, you have a right to health care. So we didn't just talk about it. We created free clinics for the people in the neighborhood. I don't know how we did it. Well, I do know, but mostly, you know, we say hook or crook, more like crook. <laughs> then we just walk into a building and take it over. We had food programs, not just a food free breakfast program, but free food programs. When Bobby Seale and I ran for office, we opened our, we launched our campaign with 10,000 bags of free food. And as we said, a chicken in every bag, and we had a chicken in every bag. How did we do that? Really difficult, but we did it. So if you're not willing to do that kind of hard work, it's hard, it's boring, but it has to be consistent. It has to be sustained, and you have to be ready to fight, and you have to be also be ready to die. Now, I'm not asking physical people to death. Yeah, it doesn't just, have to be a physical death. I, I, no, I say, look, anybody asking you to be Jonathan Jackson? I knew Jonathan. Anybody asked you to be Fred Hampton? I knew Fred. I wish they were alive. You're not Fred anyway. So I'm not going to ask you to do what I know you're not going to do. It's going to be too difficult for you. But are you willing to put in some work, not just today? Do you want to go home and look at TV? You want to put two hours in at, on the picket line and then go home and have a vegan meal? You don't really want to get in there and do no real work. You want to do some wear a little signal. And you're working for Google, steady every day, happy as a goddamn lark. And you're fine with everything in America. The coalitions that need to be built, but through all of this, that black people themselves are being left out of the equation. We're leaving our, we, those people who have a voice and have some little bit of consciousness are leaving the black agenda. Other than Black Lives Matter, which more white people are saying than black people, I've noticed at least this is totally, this is totally observational. I have no basis for saying this, but everybody I know says the same thing. And um, I've never seen so many pe- white people walking around and looking me dead in the face talking about Black Lives Matter and walking driving by in their new cars, driving by a uh, homeless encampment talking about Black Lives Matter. But anyway, barring the words Black Lives Matter, a lot of the black activists have become activists for something else as though those things aren't inter- aren't related but they make black the last thing that they're going to say i mean i went to this thing this afropunk thing are you familiar with afropunk no they have, they have their annual little it's, it's like a festival more than anything else but i went there to speak last year and so all of the women it was more like a it was more women oriented than you know like 
just black, you know what I mean? And uh, a lot of these women asked me, you know, they, they, they want to talk about what was it like to be a woman in the Black Panther Party? Now, that question carries something with it, doesn't it? It suggests these black men were probably brutes, thugs, the whole J. Edgar Hoover imagery, right? <laughs> and um, I said, well, you know, we really didn't have gender identity, identities. We, we, everybody had to do what you could do. All of us were strapped, so you weren't going to come roll up on me and play the macho game because I had a pistol too, you know, so... I said, but here's the thing that bothers me about your saying that. You said you wouldn't have been in the Black Panther Party because you wouldn't have gone along with that chauvinism. You never asked me that about SNCC, the SCLC. Nobody ever asked me about SCLC. You don't even know what organization Dr. King had. But suddenly you got an image of the Black Panther Party as being filled up with a bunch of macho, crazy men. And we're one of the only organizations that had women in, in leadership. <laughs> Yeah. But more importantly, more importantly, what do you think? I wasn't a revolutionary. I was just some hoe that joined up to want to be around these black men. Are you insane? You're insulting me by saying I wasn't a revolutionary. My sisters, my comrades, sisters who were so bad and still are bad. We have got to get back to an analysis. And as far as I'm concerned, if we're not on a black agenda, we are failing our people and we will be worried about getting our um, relationships straight in terms of personal identity, and we won't worry about exploitation. We won't worry about oppression. We won't even worry about poverty. We won't worry about hunger. We'll just worry about our identity and whether or not we get a black woman vice president. Well, on that note, Madam Chair, you have burned the entire hello somebody, set, mic, everything. I don't know if we're going to recover. <laughs> and I mean, you 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 lay some truth, and and we do have to have real analysis. And at the end of the day, black, no matter how we identify, that is how people see us, and that's how we are treated. And that whole encapsulation of identity and what it really does mean in terms of how we navigate the world. That first one is always about our our blackness. So, Madam Chair, you. Something you said about the whole organize, organize, organize just remind me of what Killer Mike said about we should plot, plan, organize, strategize, mobilize, and capitalize. Organize. Well, we have to think in terms of ourselves, you know. We're not thinking in terms of ourselves as a group. And But anyway, uh, I really appreciate your time. Never have. We appreciate you as well. Now, if you want to help Michael Lewis, please go to ElaineBrown.org. You can learn more about the case there and donate to the Michael Lewis Defense Fund and even write to Mr. Lewis in prison. Again, that's ElaineBrown.org. We'll also put this information in our show notes. You can also find it on our website at NinaTurner.com. Hello Somebody is a production of iHeartRadio and the Black Effect Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic so slow, connect the dishes to voices that glow. 
thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.